welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koistra. And I'm Carrie Peffley. I teach in the history department. And I teach in the philosophy department. Today we have Raven Aragon from the philosophy department, and we will be talking about Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Carrie will talk a little bit about Baroque music and all kinds of other good things. Thanks for listening. We've got Ray Van Aragon with us this morning talking about Jonathan Edwards. So we're about to start reading Jonathan Edwards. Ray, for students who haven't read Jonathan Edwards before, what are they going to read? Um, give us a short sort of sense of what Edwards is saying in our texts. Um, to my mind, the really important parts, uh, I don't know, do you read the faithful narrative mm-hmm. and the religious affections? Yep. So you get from Edwards a description of um, the awakenings that he witnessed and his um, description of how they go. Uh, And then at the end of um, the faithful narrative, you get his sort of confusion, the sort of puzzle where he tries to figure out why it is that after the awakening he'd been describing, why it is that there was so much melancholy and depression, particularly his uncle who Mm -hmm. killed himself after that. Um, so, and then in religious affections, you get a more uh, nuanced attempt of his to describe what real conversion is, mm-hmm. what real Christian faith is. So, I think it's really, I mean, it's powerful. Both discussions are powerful and illuminating. Mm-hmm. So, Ray, could you say a little bit more for those um, listening who haven't read either of these texts? Do we um, recall what some of the markers are for Edwards of a true conversion? Yes. I mean, the. So there are two elements. This is religious affections. So there's there's the mind and there's the affections, the emotion. That's not quite the, discri- the distinction. Mm-hmm. But um, there are some people whose conversion or faith is all emotion. And it's up and down. Emotions come and go. Affections um, come and go. We'll say it that way. Uh, there are other people whose um, faith, such as it is, is purely mind faith. It's mm-hmm. not, it's sort of cold hearted faith. And that's not right either. Uh, what true faith is combines the two so that not only do you understand, but you love what you understand. You're drawn to it and it motivates you. So you don't just talk about it, you don't just feel emotional, spiritual highs all the time. Instead, you have this deeper peace that's reflected in your behavior, mm-hmm. in how you live, in the habits that you have, in what draws you and what you really love. Um, so that's that's what real faith is. And it's a really powerful, especially near the end of religious affections, it's a really powerful description of what what true conversion amounts to rather than the sort of loud kind where people have spiritual highs or talk a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that your description of Edwards ties in nicely to what Professor Leafblad talked about in his discussion of pietism. He made clear that while pietism is certainly a reflection on the fact that Protestants had been focusing, and rightly so, on articulating right doctrine for many, many years, that Schweiner, for example, was mm-hmm. trying to bring in the idea of right practice along with right doctrine— And so that ties really nicely into um, Edward's discussion, too. Right. I mean, one of the concerns about Martin Luther is that for him, it's, you know, you know this stuff and then you, you know, you're saved by faith, you're covered by Christ's grace, and you go and live the way you want. Um, And obviously, Spainer is 
a reaction against that. And Edwards, too, he's not just talking about believing and being saved by grace. He's talking about what true faith is like, and it's mm-hmm. a lot deeper, a lot deeper than that. So um, I, I think a lot of that is a reaction to a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding of Luther. And you certainly get the fuller picture of, of faith in Edwards. Mm-hmm. So, Ray, you and I both graduated from Calvin College. Yes, we did. And uh, uh, sometimes, you know, Calvinists are thought to have a little bit of an affinity for Jonathan Edwards since he also is coming out of a Calvinist kind of theology. Are there places in Edwards where you do feel an affinity for Jonathan Edwards in ways that maybe um, others not from a Calvinist background wouldn't? Well, I think, um, I, I mean, with Calvin himself, you kind of get this view of, of God's power, God's, you know, glory in this powerful, dominating, sovereign sense. And with Edwards, it still is, you know, the grace still is irresistible, but it, the idea is that when you see it and you really understand um, the glory and beauty of God, you you just can't help but mm-hmm. be drawn to it. It just, you can't help but being impacted by it. Mm-hmm. And um, there's something kind of attractive about that picture. I mean, you get him... Uh, Edwards railing against the Arminians, and I think I think a lot of this can be uh, fit with Arminianism because you can say, yeah, when you understand, you're attracted. You know, when you understand the beauty and glory of God, you're attracted to it. But there's still some choice involved in whether you act on that attraction. Um, so I think some of what he says could be made compatible with Arminianism. This notion that we have free will. Um, but that's not the way Edwards took it. He didn't think free will is involved at all. And for some reason, he thought it was destructive to think that we have free will. And do you think that's tied to Edwards' great sense of his own sin in the way that sort of Martin Luther mm-hmm. struggled with such a huge sense of his sin that it was actually more emancipatory to think that he didn't have the free will? I I don't know enough about Edwards' uh, biography. Yeah, mm-hmm. obviously with with Luther, he's he's pretty over the top. Based, it's obvious yeah. his theology is is uh, impacted by his life. But I don't know whether um, whether Edwards' life was like that. I mean, you certainly see it in. I guess it's uh, Hutchinson. What's mm-hmm. the name of uh, Anne Hutchinson, whose conversion he describes, and she sort of feels the weight of her own sin. And then she comes to the point where she feels peace and she recognizes God, lo- God's love and all that. And she also recognizes that there's nothing she needs to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she just she just needs to accept it. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, not a free choice either mm-hmm. in a way. But it is, for, like you say, for Edwards, it is a comforting thing that it can't be denied, right. that, that it is irresistible, and as it had been for Luther. This right. is not something that's frightening. It's something that's wonderful. Right. It's It saved him, in a way, from the from the grief and misery and the self-beating, you know, mm-hmm. self-hatred that he experienced before that. Now, Ray, does your team read the personal narrative of Edwards at all? Um, that's where he talks about his own kind of mm-hmm. conversion experience. No, no, we don't read that one for better or probably for worse. <laughs> so maybe I'll by what you're saying. Yeah, maybe I'll let Carrie say a little bit then about what do we what do we read? I mean, because this will tie back into my question for Ray, who doesn't know, but we get a little mm-hmm. sense of Edwards from that. So 
yeah, highlights so, for you on that. Yeah, so his personal narrative is, as you mentioned, the, the personal story about his own conversion experience. In that, the thing that's sort of different from or the way I always think about religious affections and faithful narrative versus personal narrative is that you've got sort of a rhetoric of evidence, this sort of thoughtful reflection, kind of intellecting um, on what's going on in those in those other works versus the personal narrative where there's this rhetoric of sensation mm-hmm. it's a lot of stuff about the sweetness of of interacting with mm-hmm. god like I, the number of times he says sweetness um is absolutely remarkable so that's what i'm going to talk about with my students today i think um yeah so it's sort of his personal account and this of a very different rhetoric that he uses in that text well, and I will just follow up that comment by saying one of the other things that I'm struck by in the personal narrative is how often he talks about nature's role mm-hmm. in his experience of God. Mm-hmm. And that I think nature ends up being as much of a text as the Bible in convincing him of the sovereignty of God mm-hmm. and that he eventually yeah. goes uh, through a period where he doesn't like thunderstorms, but then as he becomes closer to God, like the thunderstorms are evidence mm-hmm. in a very satisfying way of God's power and sovereignty. And I always appreciate that he has a very sort of scientific almost. I mean, he sees nature in the way that scientists see it. Yeah. They just they understand the intelligent design all around them. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's quite fantastic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and you can see, I think, in Edwards. And I mean, he is an enlightenment thinker. Sure, he's a Puritan and he's influenced by the awakening, but he is influenced by enlightenment empiricist um, philosophy. And so you can see a little bit of Lockean ideas in the way that he's talking about this conversion experience, right? This, the sensations that he's having nature, the way that it all functions so, so beautifully, right? So it's this, this, I don't know, aesthetic scientific approach. It's beautiful. Okay. And so, um, He's drawn both by the glory and the beauty. So you mm-hmm. say a yeah. thunderstorm mm-hmm. yeah. not makes him see God, but I suppose in a way it does. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Okay. But in a different way than Luther's thunderstorm right. lightning right. experience. <laughs> right, because there's definitely a sense throughout his personal narrative that God is in control. Like the thunder mm-hmm. is God is in masterful control. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking you sh- your team should read yeah. it. Maybe we should. Well, you, you can see, like, I got very excited as I, as I was talking about that. I feel like I'm waxing eloquent and excitedly about Edwards. That's, which that's what you always do, doesn't carry. happen all the time. No, it doesn't. But his personal <laughs> think, narrative, I love. It's so fascinating. Did he have the, did he have the recognition of his own sin? Oh, way? yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Um, so was there a particular point that set that off, like it like it did with um, Anne Hutchinson? No, I think it's Peppered, and I think it's Abigail Hutchinson. Oh, yeah. yeah that's right. That's right. Anne yeah. Hutchinson, another a, character, another. which is why I just mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Okay. But no, it's totally fine. Um, but yeah, I think it's sprinkled. And so he mm-hmm. has pure, and he talks about this, that as a youth, he had a tremendous closeness with God that he then lost, but then came back to, and he mm-hmm. does reflect about his sin and the vastness of his sin and how, mm-hmm. I mean, then he also uses up like this idea of like being swallowed up by mm-hmm. God, which is another fascinating mm-hmm. image. Mm-hmm. I think he even uses the word wrapped in mm-hmm. God's grace or something yeah. like that, which mm-hmm. again reminded me of Julian of Norwich mm-hmm. in terms of the clothing metaphor that yeah. she uses there. So yeah, mm. it's, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I think 
um, that that's one of the things that struck me about religious affections in particular. I think anyone trying to understand the Christian faith or think about what it means to be a, a Christian can learn a lot from it, regardless of the tradition that they that they come from. Yes, and it's certainly a helpful. I think my own disposition leads me to be more drawn to his rhetoric of evidence in mm-hmm. religious affections. Um, yesterday, I was having a conversation with a few folks about whether or not they had ever seen or faked a religious experience because, say, they were in a situation where other people were, say, raising their hands and worship were clearly moved by the Spirit. Have you ever felt that you were sort of moved to behave in this way without actually experiencing anything underneath? It was a very interesting conversation and sort of led to this discussion of Jonathan Edwards. Um, as a more cerebral person, what do you do if you're not having those sensations? Right. Or even if even if you are, I know I had a I had a friend in college who um, who went at chapel. He mm-hmm. had a sort of religious a religious euphoria, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in a group, right? You're singing great songs, you feel great and all yeah. that. Um, and then he went to a like a rock concert a couple weeks later, and he had the same feeling. <laughs> um, and this was completely, I mean, talk about disillusioned after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it really knocked him knocked him off his faith, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, just thinking that it was all shallow, it was all emotion. And and Edwards does recognize the the risk of that. Yes, he does. Yes, emotions on their own are pulled by a lot, a lot of different things, which is why, and this is why I'm so excited to talk about Baroque music on Monday as well, because the Baroque composers were well aware of the emotional reaction to music, and it's very profound, it's very strong, and so they built that into, right, certain chords make us feel happy, and so a good composer can manipulate you to feel happy. Um, and if you've ever been in a church service where a choir ends on a very loud and high note, even if they haven't done a very good job and the text wasn't very good, you're going to get applause after that, right? right. There's that, that strong emotional response. Right. So what um, composers will you be talking about in your Baroque music, Carrie? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about... Handel, just because he wrote so many operas, and that's a new form of music. And again, it's highly extravagant, very emotional. So Baroque music, like Baroque art, is kind of over the top, um, Mm -hmm. sort of lots of improvisation and um, drama. So I'll talk about Handel, and then I'll talk about Bach, because I love Bach so very much, and I've loved him ever since I was a little kid. And I am Despite how cerebral I am, I am prone to listening to the Brandenburg concertos and weeping. Mm. Um, they move me deeply. <laughs> Maybe. Now, in those, I mean, so they knew, the composers knew that emotions could be moved by the music. I think a lot of concern about, say, contemporary Christian music is that they also know that, but it's sort of manipulation that's going on there, right. an attempt at it. Now, I take it um, that Bach and Handel mm-hmm. or Handel mm-hmm. um, uh, didn't intend it that way. I wouldn't think so. No, it wasn't meant to be manipulative. It was more, it was actually very similar to Edwards and the way he talks about, right, it's not just emotion. Um, it needs to be an educated intellectual emotion. So this this concept that was really important for sort of regulating those was called the doctrine of affections. And the doctrine of affections 
uh, signified that a certain piece of music ought to evoke a particular response, but in a controlled way. And so there's this tension between control and extravagance, and you have to sort of stay consistent. And it's not a superficial, manipulated emotional response, but rather only a felt response to an intellectual idea which I think meshes pretty well with Jonathan Edwards. Right. And I take it Bach's music is quite intellectual in the way it's yes. organized, the way mm-hmm. it's structured. Yep. It's ve- the, the form of Baroque music, despite the fact that it can be very extravagant and a way overly dramatic, is also incredibly regimented and has very, very strict form. So, for example, fugues were very, very strictly regulated. And uh, a good composer had to be creative, but still stick within that regulated intellectual pattern. Now, what I want to know is, will you be performing any music on Monday? I will probably be playing a tiny bit from one of Bach's fugues, so that people can get the idea of what what's happening in the fugue and what the voices are. Because in a fugue, you have one main subject that's intru- introduced, and then that's um, another voice repeats that, and then a counter subject happens. And so in a four-part fugue, you have all of these different elements going on. So we'll, I'll play until I run out of juice, <laughs> which sometimes happens with Bach. He was a virtuoso. So I, Are I'm, you practicing? I am. Is, yeah, I've been practicing okay. on my piano at home. Okay. Mainly, I'll be playing a lot of recordings. And sure. we'll do a le- listening exercise. We'll actually try to follow along with a Bach score. Nice. So we can follow that. Yes, it's going to be good times. You might want to come, right? Just just for the fun no, of it. For the listening public. Yeah. I mean, if you're listening to this early Monday morning, um, we got lecture at CC313 and at 11 something. 12.30. 12.30. There you go. What time do we, what time is this class? 12.30 <laughs> and then uh, 2.50. Mm-hmm. So just look and for you get it. A, you get a concert for free. Mm-hmm. For free. Yeah. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, for you, Mary, I'm going to turn back to Jonathan Edwards just for a second. Uh, for you, right? What what do you appreciate the most about? What's your favorite thing to read from Jonathan Edwards? Do you like his description of religious affections more? The you know the the narrative. I think so. So here's here's a little background for sure. me and uh, Jonathan Edwards. So once in a while, like in in uh, church groups, when I was on a council at church, I would have to lead devotions. I am mm. terrible at leading devotions. Partly because I never know what to read. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I have read um, the description uh, that Jonathan Edwards gives near the end of uh, the excerpt of Religious Affections where he talks about true faith and the way a person who's truly been converted, um, the way the person approaches life and is so quick and easy to give up uh, worldly things mm-hmm. in, in service of, of God. Uh, and I always find that part so powerful and really... I mean, it's attractive, and it's also it's also motivating, mm-hmm. and you kind of hope that uh, that through your life you can move in that direction. So that that part to me is is a, a part of Edwards' writing that really appeals to me. Mm-hmm. I love that. And when you teach, what's um, what's your favorite part of teaching, Jonathan Edwards? Uh, partly, I like students to reflect on their own worship experience mm-hmm. and and how. Their understanding of the faith uh, fits with with Edwards. I mean, there's always the the end of a faithful narrative where Edwards runs into these problems. You know, what can I make of the fact that these people had these spiritual highs and maybe they weren't real after all? How can you distinguish mm-hmm. between real and non-real? 
so talking about uh, religious, uh, contemporary religi- uh, religious services, religious experiences, students really like to think about that. And mm-hmm. I think Edwards is a real corrective um, to excesses that contemporary worship may bring with it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Indeed. Um, other books, uh, maybe sort of that are parallels to Edwards or like reading Edwards makes you think of um, a different book that you would have folks l- read? Well, actually, Edwards, so this is, um, if, if you really want to read this, you should take my, my epistemology and metaphysics class or philosophy <laughs> of religion. So Alvin Plantinga, when he talks about religious knowledge, he really appeals a lot to Edwards mm. um, in the way that the Holy Spirit, his notion that the Holy Spirit works in us and draws us um, to this knowledge of Christ. Uh, so, yeah, Plantinga really piggybacks on Edwards when he talks about knowledge of, of Christian, the Christian truth. Um, his, his account really matches Edwards' mm. account. So not only, again, not only is it is it the mind, mm-hmm. but it's also the affections. So not only do we mm-hmm. believe, but we're also drawn to it. Uh, true faith is like that. So read some Alvin Plantinga and take a couple of classes with Raven Aragon. And then you'll know it all. Yes. That sounds fantastic. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, should we ask our yeah. typical question? Ray, what's on your nightstand? Um, this is, uh, there's a book that I've had for a while that I've been reading called, and this is kind of depressing sounding, it's called A Peace to End All Peace. And it's about the um, formation of the Middle East by mm. Western powers after mm. the First World War, oh, during and after. So it is, so that's what I've been reading. What, I want what, to learn more. Yeah, what led you to that particular book? I'm just curious. I think I saw it on a shelf oh. and I bought it. It's always, you know, how is it that in the Middle East there's such a, toxic overlap mm-hmm. of different ethnic groups who hate each other mm-hmm. um, and they're in the same country mm-hmm. you know and what what are the Kurds doing mm-hmm. um, yeah. mixed around and how is it that they don't have their own and um, why are there civil wars why is Iraq made of groups of people again that hate each mm-hmm. other where how'd that happen mm-hmm. and so I've always wanted to know that and of course Western powers after World War one made these bizarre choices in shaping the Middle East and it's been disastrous. So that's the idea, a peace to end all peace. So this, the Treaty of Versailles and, and the things mm-hmm. that followed um, led to the mess that the Middle East can tend to be ever yep. since then. Nice. And what's on your nightstand, Carrie? So I have shifted from uh, Handmaid's Tale into Testaments. So I'm now into the new, the new I just started that last night. Um, so I'm excited to see what happens in the new and Sam, have you already right. finished that book? Yeah. Sam Sam has read everything that we've read uh-huh. on this oh, podcast, which is so fun. Exactly. So, okay. And I'm still reading Evensong. So, okay. um, but I will mention that my daughter and I are reading the Penderwick series. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at Ray because he has a daughter. But no, this is maybe later than her time. Um, this is a fascinating series. Have you read it, Sam? No. Oh, Jenna knows this one. So we've just started the fourth one. And the fourth one is very interesting because the youngest of the four sisters is in a very interesting year. She's sort of like 10, 11, and it kind of goes dark. So it's kind of a fascinating mm. kid's book as she's trying to navigate her darkness and figure out how to overcome that. So I just say, you know, parents out there, or people who just need a lighter read, read the Penderwicks one through three and then prepare for some darkness. So good to know. Go. Thanks. We're, we're all reading kind of dark stuff. Yeah, oh, that's, that's true. Yeah. Well, 
guess it's that time of the year. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's very cold and dark outside. <laughs> yeah, happy Valentine's Day. Valentine's oh, Day, by yes, the way. It oh, is yeah. Valentine's Day. Yeah. I'll be reading you the too. Anne Bradstreet poem to my dear and lovely, loving husband in my next class. So, Oh, very nice. I will be doing a Valentine theme. I think I may oh. show some valentine's some puritan valentine's cards oh fantastic which if you've ever seen those oh. online they're pretty hysterical all about right. feeling bad these about the feelings you have these aren't real are they no i oh. don't think so okay they're my, just good my, puritan should jokes. Be. my yeah. poem is real though okay. <laughs> i didn't realize it was valentine's day until last night i heard someone mention it on the radio mm-hmm. so this does not reflect very well on me no good luck later on today ray <laughs> well You've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. 